This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. Since the 1960s, there have been more than 100 space telescopes sent into orbit and beyond to help astronomers collect information about the universe. Space telescopes gain an advantage over land-based telescopes because they're beyond Earth's atmosphere, which blocks some of the light heading our way. The Hubble Space Telescope, launched in 1990, was a big leap forward, and now it's been exactly one year since the James Webb Space Telescope sent back its first images, and it's been an even even bigger leap forward. And there are other new space telescopes being launched, including the European Space Agency's Euclid that is designed to explore the composition and evolution of what's known as the dark universe that's comprised of dark matter and dark energy. It launched earlier this month. Add to that the rise of commercial space launches for both science and adventure, and it's probably fair to say we're in an exciting time for space science and exploration right now. Today we're going to explore some of what's been happening and where we're heading with an FGCU professor and astronomer who conducts research using a number of space telescopes himself. I spoke with him yesterday. Let's hear that now. Dr. Derek Buzashi is an astronomer and the Whitaker Eminent Scholar in Florida Gulf Coast University's Department of Chemistry and Physics. Dr. Buzashi, welcome back to the show. Oh, happy to be here. So for starters, we've had you on the show before, but can you remind our listeners what your academic areas of interest are and what your background is? So I work on stars in general um, and in particular uh, how they're constructed, how we understand how they're constructed and also on stellar activity, so spots and flares and things like that and how that ties in with stellar rotation and evolution. And I'm also interested in exoplanets and how, of course, they're linked to the stars that they, uh, that they orbit. And so uh, there's a, a coupling there as well. So I have some interest in exoplanets as well. So uh, stars way out there, not necessarily our sun. I, I have worked on our sun and I do sometimes work on our sun, but most of the stars are farther out. Most of them are not that far out though. They're, they're certainly local to us in the galaxy. How long have you been at FGCU? Oh, it's, uh, let's see, coming up on 12 years. How much of your time is spent in the classroom with students versus, you know, researching and writing proposals and all that stuff? I mean, it varies from year to year and semester to semester. So um, sometimes it's about 50-50 with students and 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 50% of the time with other things, although the other things sometimes involve students because I do involve students in research and so there's that connection. Sometimes it's less and there are more administrative things to do and sometimes it's a little bit more than that, but I'd say probably about 50-50. When I was uh, mentioning that I was going to be talking to you, some of my colleagues were like, ask him about the observatory on campus because <laughs> we've all walked past it, but is that actively being used for science? Is that mostly to teach students about the, the techniques? What is it? So it, it Originally, I think, was built uh, with the idea of being used for science. It's not ideal for that. It's a relatively small telescope. There's still lots of things that you can do with a small telescope, but its location isn't great. It wasn't great to begin with because it's Florida and all of the things that you would look for. As and it's good on places. campus where there's lights around. Right. So we've made it worse so right. by building buildings, <laughs> more buildings around it and putting lights near it. So, so it's good for public outreach. It's good for sort of teaching students. It's also good for uh, testing out instruments and that we might want to take someplace else. Do you spend time in there? I do spend time in there. Um, I'm trying to – so I, I did some renovations in it last year, well, earlier this year, um, automating the dome, which was manual before. had a motor, but you had to 
you know, tell it where to turn. Now it's coupled to the telescope, so it goes where the telescope points. So I'm trying to kind of modernize the facility and then and then bring it back into more regular use. Cool. I'll have to let you, or I'll have to have you let me in there someday. I'd oh, like sure. to see it on the inside. Um, okay, so before we get to some of your research, I'd like to just talk about some of the stuff that's been in the news. We had you on the show when the James Webb Space Telescope first, when they first released their images, which was almost a year ago now. Yeah. From your perspective, you know, I don't know how closely you follow that because you have have your own focus, but you know, is it living up to its expectations? Is it exceeding its expectations? I'd say it's exceeding its expectations, and its expectations, at least among astronomers, were pretty high to begin with. So it's been very, very successful. I mean, the two sort of main focus areas for it from the very beginning and from the time that it was planned were the sort of cosmology focus, so looking uh, far back into the early universe, and also then looking at um, star formation and sort of exoplanet atmospheres and things like that that are closer to home. Those were sort of the two the two big areas it was going to focus on, and it's made some interesting discoveries in both of those. Uh, Can you areas. highlight any interesting discoveries sure. that pop to mind? Sure. The, the, the cosmological angle is probably the most interesting to people, I think. And there, what we're seeing is, so it looks... It looks back into time, right? You, know, you sort of think of it as a time machine because light travels at a finite speed. So when you look at something that's very far away, you're seeing the light that was emitted in the past. And because it's optimized to work in the infrared, one other thing that happens when light travels across large distances in space, the universe is expanding, the wavelength of that light expands, and so effectively the color sort of changes. So instead, the light that might have been emitted in ultraviolet wavelengths is now infrared. Huh. And so that's what, that's what Webb sees. Is that sees. a subset of redshift? Yes, it is. Uh, so same idea. is exactly the same idea. But you can think of the wavelengths as kind of stretching out over over time because the universe is expanding and everything in the universe is expanding. So since it's optimized to look in the infrared, it's looking at these galaxies, what they put out in the ultraviolet back in the past. So it's looking back to uh, a time when the universe was less than a billion years old. And we had expectations about what we would see then. And, and probably the biggest one is that that's the time when structure structure to an astronomer means sort of we're building galaxies and we're sort of organizing the matter components of the universe. That was all happening. And what we're finding with Webb is that the structure happened faster than we thought it was going to uh, or than we thought it did. So when we look back to when the universe was 500 million or a billion years old, so 14 billion years old now, so it's a long way in the past, um, we expected a certain amount of structure, but we're seeing a lot more than that. So we're seeing galaxies that are uh, have have much more internal structure to them than we thought they would have. We're seeing supermassive black holes, um, which again, you which was just in the news, which was just in the news. So we expected to see those. But one thing that's not sort of clear to astronomers about supermassive black holes, so let's talk about the distinction here. So we have sort of stellar mass black holes, so stars that are somewhat more massive than the sun, 20 or 30 or 50 times as massive as the sun. When they die, they end up as black holes, but those black holes are not huge. They're a few dozen solar masses. Galaxies, almost all the galaxies that we know of, have central supermassive black holes. And like those the Milky have, Way. Like the Milky Way and other galaxies in the sort of local group that the Milky Way is part of. And most galaxies that we go out and look at that are in nearby in space, they have black holes with masses of sort of tens of millions or hundreds of millions or even billions of stellar masses. So way bigger. Way bigger way than bigger. these. Than these. Um, not, not as massive as the rest of the galaxy itself, but a big component. 
And it takes time to build those things. We don't really know in detail how those are built. We know how the smaller ones are built. But whatever the process is, it happens pretty fast because we look back to when the universe is half a billion years old and we're already seeing with this most recent discovery that there's sort of 10 million solar mass black holes around. Which is what uh, is not intuitive. No, not at all. So, uh, I mean, we knew they would form eventually, but I don't think very many people expected them to form that quickly. And so there's sort of a tension there between what the, the computer models, which you know include what we understand, the, the best physics that we understand, what they tell us should happen and how fast it should happen and what we're actually seeing. Now, it's not, you know, sometimes you see and you know, everything gets kind of popularized and you see, oh, there's this huge discrepancy between, you know, what we, physics we think we understand and what we're seeing. And it's not so huge that the physics is in doubt, but it is big enough that there are details that we're clearly we don't understand or we have wrong. So that's – I mean that's the exciting thing, right, about building an When instrument. you find things you don't understand, it makes you broaden your understanding. Absolutely. I mean it would be it would be boring if we sent it up and it just said yeah, everything you thought you knew, that's all right. The paper I was reading uh, – the, the news story I should say I was reading about the uh, supermassive black hole thing described it as, as very distant. Now you're saying it was – early on in the formation of the universe. Um, I know we're going to get into some, some deep thoughts here, but, you know, is it distant because it's far away or because it's far long ago? And I mean, those, so what does that mean about where we are relative to it? So those two things are kind of inextricable, right? Okay. I mean, you, you can't <laughs> – because, because of this finite velocity of light – I mean, you can't look at things that are far away without also looking into the past. And so those, those are sort of inextricably bound to each other. Um, but it's both. It's, it's both far, far away um, and it is uh, far in the past. But we think that you know, on a large-ish scale, the universe seems to be fairly uniform. So there's no reason necessarily to think that if I look at some supermassive black hole or some ancient galaxy – that that part of the universe that it's in is probably much different from the part of the universe that we're in. But a more accurate way maybe to say that is that what we see when we look at the environment of that black hole when you know the universe was 500 million years old, it's probably a lot like what the environment here was like but when the universe was 500 million years old. Right? We, we can't – we can't just do the straight comparison because time has passed. Understood. Okay. Um, so dark matter, dark energy. Uh, Euclid, new space telescope, just launched. Um, I was reading up on, on this and, you know, the idea of dark matter, as I understand it, dates back quite a ways, but the idea of dark energy doesn't really date back that far. Right. Um, you know, it's sort of theoretical. It's this idea that we know the universe is expanding and something must be a factor in that. And that's what we think dark matter and dark energy are. How does a telescope look for something like that, I guess, is the question. Well, so let, let, me, let me talk for just a minute about the two things, about okay. the dark matter and dark energy. And yeah, then we'll talk correct about me. Where, no, no, where no, you're I'm... not wrong. It just maybe we could add a little more detail. Sure. So, so dark matter was originally discovered by looking at how galaxies rotate. So if you look at a galaxy like the Milky Way, what you see is the galaxy is turning and Really what's happening is that the stars are orbiting the center just like planets orbit the sun. And by measuring how fast the stars orbit and we know how far they are from the center of the galaxy, we can sort of figure out how massive the galaxy must be, how strong it pulls. And what we were finding was that the stars were moving too fast. That is, all the visible light that we see from stars and other stuff didn't make enough mass to make the stars move the way they move. And so we infer that there's other mass there. We can't see what it is and so therefore 
dark matter because it doesn't emit light. Dark energy is a little different. So when we first uh, started measuring the expansion of the universe, we, we, we look at galaxies that are far away, or back in time. Um, they, we all look like we're moving away from each other, which is an artifact of the fact that the universe is expanding. If you think about it in two dimensions or three dimensions, put uh, imagine blowing up a balloon, right, and drawing little galaxies on the balloon, and then you blow it up and it expands. And you can imagine that whichever of those galaxies you're sitting in, all the other ones look like they're moving away from you. And the farther away from you they are, the faster they look like they're moving. And measuring those velocities tells you something about how fast the balloon is expanding. And the same thing applies to the universe when we look at all these galaxies. What we found, though, was that the rate of expansion, what we expected to happen was that the rate of expansion would slow with time because everything in the galaxy is, uh, has mass and so it attracts each other. And that slows the explosion down, right, or the expansion down. But what we found instead is that the rate of the expansion seemed to be increasing. And the only way that happens is if there's some sort of repulsive force that's operating and forces are always connected in, in physics to, to energies. And so this must be some kind of – the inference is that this is some kind of energy that we're not familiar with and hence the, the dark energy kind of an analogy to, to dark matter. So what Euclid is doing is it's looking – it's not looking quite as deep as uh, James Webb is. So it's typically going to look out to – 10 billion years or so in the past instead of 13 or 14 billion years in the past. But it looks over like a third of the sky. So Webb looks at little patches of the sky. So Euclid is going to do maps of huge portions of the sky. And I talked earlier about structure. And the way structure forms, you form all these clusters of galaxies and these sort of ribbons of material through space. And that formation is governed by dark matter and dark energy and, of course, the visible stuff. And so we can build models of how we build this structure over time and by tuning the amount of dark matter and the amount of dark energy and then we can sort of figure out what those components look, must look like. And that's what Euclid is going to allow us to do. It's going to make these incredibly detailed maps of how fast things are moving, where they're located in the sky, how that changes with time. And from that, we hope to be able to infer the distribution of dark matter and dark energy. But we'll be inferring, uh, not observing. Um, yeah, because I mean by definition they're dark, right? So we don't see them. I mean we see their effects because we see the, the gravity, right? Um, you know, it's just like there's a central black hole in our galaxy. We can't see the central black hole because it's not a – it's usually the way you see central black holes is they're absorbing gas and, and that causes a lot of commotion and so you see radiation from that. The central black hole in our galaxy is pretty quiescent now, so we don't really see it. But we can see stars that are close to it and we see them orbiting really fast, an invisible thing. And that tells you that there's something massive there. So the, the analogy kind of is, works here too. We'll see how material moves and how stuff that emits light, matter that emits light, moves and organizes itself. And even though we can't see what's uh, responsible for the forces that's pushing it around, we can infer what must be there. Can you imagine a future where we come up with a technique to observe dark matter and dark energy? Sure. Um, you know, we have to know what they are first, right? I mean, that's the problem is that uh, it's hard to build a tool to go look for something if you don't really know what you're looking for. I mean, the, this is where kind of astrophysics interacts with the, the particle physics and the high energy physics community <clears throat> because they're looking for, you know, if you think of it as dark matter, I mean, physically, there should be particles associated with that. We don't know what they are. Those are the people who are interested in what those particles are and so they're trying to find them with particle accelerators and other tools and astronomers are kind of on the other end of that looking at how big pieces of the universe move and trying to infer 
You all are chipping away at the same thing from from different directions. From different yeah, directions. It's like we're tunneling from different directions, and we hope we meet in the middle. If you're just joining the show, we're nerding out on space stuff today with Dr. Derek Buzashi. He's an astronomer and the Whitaker Eminent Scholar in Florida Gulf Coast University's Department of Chemistry and Physics. If you'd like to engage with the show about today's topic, just find us on Facebook. We're at WGCU Public Media, and on Twitter, we're at WGCU using the hashtag GCL. So most of that stuff is not really directly in your wheelhouse. I want to move into your wheelhouse a little bit here. Um, Astro seismology. Um, uh, you sent me that paper that was published in uh, Nature Astronomy. Um, basically put, it's using astro seismology, which is sort of your specialty, um, among other techniques to study massive distant stars to determine their composition and therefore whether they're going to go supernova or black hole. Is that a fair way to that, that's one boil of the things, boil Yeah, it it's one of the things we look at. So, you know, we want to know how massive they are. We want to know how big they are in terms of sort of radius. And we also want to know things like how old they are, um, which tends to be really difficult. And that's probably of those three sort of physical parameters, the size, the mass, the age. The age is the hardest. Um, and so astroseismology is a really good tool for determining ages. Can you explain what astroseismology is? Sure. Means? So we're looking at oscillations of stars. And so if you think of a star as like a giant musical instrument, um, imagine musical instruments that you're used to. The sound that you hear from different instruments sounds different. They play different notes. And that's a function of how they're built, right? How big they are, what they're made of, things like that. And the vibration they're creating. And the vibration they're creating. Now, we don't hear sound from these stars. But if you think, if you imagine looking at like a string on a, on a guitar, when you pluck it, it vibrates back and forth. I could watch the string move back and forth and I could figure out the notes from that. Basically, what we look at is how the light output from the star varies as the star oscillates, as the star vibrates. And so that tells us which notes it's playing. And then we try to work backwards. What must the star be built like to play these notes? And it plays more than one at a time. So we have a lot of constraints that we can work with. And so the paper that you sent me is um, using a technique called polar... Pol Polarimetry. Polarimetry. Explain what that is in layman's terms best um, you can. So... It's like polarized sunglasses. It is exactly like polarized sunglasses. So you put polarized sunglasses on and, you know, the classic example is, you know, you're a fisherman. You want to see the fish under the water, the water's uh, glare from sunlight. You put the polarized sunglasses on and if you orient them properly, then the glare goes away. So what's happening is that, you know, light is these oscillating electric and magnetic fields and most light oscillates uh, from most sources, the, the direction of the oscillation is random. So it's a mixture of waves oscillating in all sorts of different directions. But when the light either bounces off or comes from something which is very – has a very pronounced kind of symmetry to it. So light from the sun directly is mostly not polarized or randomly polarized. But when it bounces off the water surface, now there's a preferred direction, right? Not all rays are treated the same. And that causes some of these oscillating directions to be reflected more strongly than others. And so then the light becomes polarized. And, and then your glasses screen out some of those directions. Mm. And so you can preferentially screen out the ones that come from the, the reflection. What we see with the stars is that they're not reflecting light. They're producing it. But it's, again, a symmetry thing. So if the star is oscillating in a way which is completely symmetrical – so I'll go back to my balloon analogy in a different way, right? So we're going to puff up and shrink the balloon. So it's going to get a little bit bigger, a little bit smaller, a little mm -hmm. bit bigger, a little bit smaller. That's very symmetrical. Every point on the surface is behaving in exactly the same way. So that light that that produces is not polarized. But 
if I oscillate in a, in a way where, so imagine the balloon is cut in half like an equator. And so the upper half is puffing up and the lower half is getting a little smaller and then that whole process reverses itself. That's a different way that you can oscillate the star and that's, that has very asymmetrical. And so the light that comes from that is polarized, slightly polarized. So if we can measure that, we can tell how the star has to be oscillating, not just what note it's playing, but how the shape is changing. And that becomes really important because for most of these stars, they can oscillate a million different ways, literally. And so they can play a million different notes. And so just knowing the note is not enough to go back and figure out how the thing is built. I have to know how the surface is changing at the same time, and polarimetry is our tool for doing that. As I understand it, some of the data used in that study is not necessarily newly collected data. And I guess my question is, is, you know, as techniques and technologies change, there's data being collected now that maybe 30 years from now will become relevant to some future study and vice versa. Is that yeah? That and sense? so that's right. It's just and the, the long continuum of science, and and you know that's why you guys collect data because right, some, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Know. So some of the data that was uh, the older data that was used in this study is data I collected back in 2000, so more than 20 years ago. Uh, some of it is data other people collected in the 1990s and 2000s. Some of it was collected just a year or two ago. And the key is, you know, not only just having this data, but having it archived in a way that people can reach in and get to, having enough information about how it was collected, how it was reduced, how it was analyzed originally, all that is out there. And so, yeah, you you want to be able to reach back and make use of all this older material that's around. It's it's not it's not worthless just because it's old. That's I just find that fascinating. Um, you know, one of the things that you're trying to do is determine the sort of the future of some of these stars, whether they're going to become a black hole or a supernova. If we're talking about time frames that are maybe millions of years, how do we know whether we're right? Well, they're not. The timescales are not that long for these massive stars. So stars compared to us humans. Yeah, even compared to us humans. So. Um, stars kind of operate on a – massive stars operate on a, on a kind of live fast, die young model. And so a star that's say 10 times so – the, the sun has a lifetime of roughly 10 billion years say. Um, but a star that's 10 times the mass of the sun has a lifetime that's only tens of millions of years. And so by the time you get up to these stars that are 30, 40 solar masses that are going to turn into black holes and make gamma ray bursts and all these other exciting things – their lifespans are not that long, even by human standards. I mean, you know, a million years seems like a really long time to us. But the point is that in a human lifetime, the structure of the star could actually change measurably. Hmm. And we're starting to go look for that on some of these really massive stars because we have data from 30 years ago and we have data from now. Our models say that we are just at the edge of being able to see changes over that. And that's pretty cool to see stellar evolution in human time. But you can only do that with these really high-mass stars because they, they live such short lives. You started – you got your PhD in 89 if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Um, how much has the landscape changed in astronomy since then you know, because of technology and just because of research you know, scaffolding upon itself? Um, a lot. Uh, so, so from an observational point of view, when I got my PhD, electronic detectors – uh, we're just starting, right? So, I mean, I use them for my uh, for my dissertation, but my students now would laugh at the detectors that I used back then. So, the technologies improved immensely then. So, the the amount of information that we kind of extract from um, every observation is much much greater than it used to be. But the other thing that's changed so much is just the ability to communicate. Um, you know, back then, 
you worked with other people, but it was complicated. You know, if people were a long way away, it was hard to talk to them. Sharing data was difficult. Now that's so much easier. So we build the now these large collaborations. We bring in a lot more voices, uh, a lot more people thinking and analyzing data, and, and that's it's a much more communal activity than it used to be. Last question: uh, Have you played around with large language models like GPT four, <laughs> and do you see that as being something that astronomers might be able to harness in the future to sort through data, etc.? Sure, I do. Uh, you know, we were talking about this before we went on the air, and. I mean, I have played with them a little bit, and what I've used them for so far is just uh, helping code, so helping write computer code. You know, we can you can work with the large language model almost like you're pair coding with someone, you know, a colleague, and you can say this is this is what I want to do. Let's talk about a good way to do that. I think moving on to data analysis. Uh, especially with the really big data sets, is it's going to be something that's going to happen in the future. People are a little wary now because, you know, GPT-3 in particular has been shown to be somewhat creative with the truth sometimes, and so you're a little suspicious. Uh, especially if you give it a really big data set, so big that a human being can't see the patterns and things in it, and GPT. And if you or, can't verify and what you it's telling you, then you're uh, up against the wall, basically. Right. So I think right now the focus is going to be areas that are really focused, or where a human being can actually spot check and verify that what's coming out is sensible. I think it'll take a while for us to get to the point where we're confident enough in what it's telling us that we're going to trust it more. Uh, to be on its own. Interesting. Well, thank you for nerding out with me. I appreciate it. I thank love you. talking about this stuff. Dr. Derek Buzashi is an astronomer and the Whitaker Eminent Scholar in Florida Gulf Coast University's Department of Chemistry and Physics. Dr. Buzashi, thanks for coming in and talking to hey, me. Hey, thanks so much. It was great. You can find links to some of the topics we discussed today on our website, wgcu.org gcl. If you missed any of the show, you can hear episodes in their entirety on our website or wherever you find podcasts. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director today is Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida. Florida.